0: It's Joe Marino, Kyle Krabs from the Draft Network. Chris Schubert's here. He's producing. We're all from thedraftnetwork.com. And that should make the way for a great conversation today talking about this 2022 NFL Draft class. We're going to talk about some of the biggest storylines as it pertains to this class. And obviously, with the first big wave of free agency now behind us, we're gaining more and more clarity about how the team needs are going to shake out when we get to the end of April. Kyle, what's going on, my dude?
1: Yeah, it's um talking, talking draft from a big picture perspective is always fun because like we are so in the weeds all the time. You know, we're watching players, individual players and studying them and then trying to figure out individual team fits. And this is kind of the time of year where we could start to, take the step back, look at everything from a 30,000 foot view and really appreciate some of the narratives that we are getting. And I think that's what's going to be fun about today's conversation that we're going to have and looking at, because like, I generally know where you stand, but every single one of these years is a different experience as far as how we choose to value certain players and what certain teams should do based on the economics of the draft and what prospects are available and where there's scarcity and where there's depth and all that coming today is this This is my favorite time of year.
0: Big position groups on deck today. We're going to get into quarterbacks, wide receivers, defensive ends. And look, the NFL is a passing league. And so we are going to cover a lot of ground today when it comes to the premium positions that have to do with throwing the football and what's going to be a fun thing to kind of navigate through is that distinction between predictively what we think is going to happen and where we personally settle on these players, the difference between forecasting and evaluating the NFL draft. That's going to be a big part of what we get into today. And I'm especially excited to talk quarterbacks where our personal QB ones might not be the same as our predictive QB1.
1: Well, Joe, I guess let's let's start that conversation right there because our perception of this year's quarterback class, you know, we we recently just did on on a different episode of The Draft Dudes and compared our quarterback this year versus past quarterbacks. Our top quarterback this year in our eyes is Liberty's Malik Willis. And the entire thought process behind Malik Willis as QB1, is rooted in the fact that anytime you are looking to draft a face-of-the-franchise quarterback, the ones you see who end up having the highest frequency of success are the ones with high-level physical tools that provide them with the things you just can't coach. And Malik Willis is that guy this year. So if we're looking at the predictive versus our personal standpoints of the quarterbacks who do you think the biggest challenge is predictively to the guy we feel is the top quarterback mm-hmm. prospect not necessarily the top quarterback right now but top po- quarterback prospect in Malik Willis.
0: Yeah, that's that's a fascinating question to ask Kyle because every team values things differently, you know, they're going to meet with these players and skill set matters, but so does personality and, and just the city that they play in and the locker room and the culture that they're trying to create. And that's obviously going to create a lot of wide-ranging viewpoints on who, who's every team's preferred quarterback and then obviously when they're actually ready to pull the trigger. And so we've seen this in previous years where the guy with the highest floor, a guy that's closer to their ceiling, can sometimes get elevated up in the actual quarterbacks in terms of the order they come off the board, as opposed to maybe the guys that are a little bit more projecty, they fall behind a little bit, but they end up going to better situations because let's face it, they're going to teams that are a little bit further down the board. You think about Justin Herbert, you think about Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson guys that had a little bit of work to do, but they go to good landing spots. And those teams are built around them. So I think that's what's most fascinating about that question is finding those discrepancies, figuring out who's really going to pick a quarterback, and based on their particular dynamics, which one they like, and then from there, how equipped are they to allow this quarterback to come in and flourish? And so as you apply that lens to Malik Willis from Liberty, who is our personal QB1s, and I think predictively, I'm ready to say that I think he's going to be the first quarterback off the board. You know, and then it just comes down to landing spots. And, and you know, there's, there's quite a few as early as two to Detroit. And then, you know, you think about Seattle at nine and, and the list goes on and on as you make your way down the board. But I have a good feeling right now that Malik Willis is going to be that first guy off the board at quarterback and he'd be the guy that I would pick.
1: Well, and to your point on that front, every single one of the guys behind him has legitimate questions about their profile as a player. You look at Kenny Pickett, one-year sample size of high-level play. How sustainable is that versus what he was previously at University of Pittsburgh? And of course, he did go on and set a lot of the career records for passing, breaking some of Dan Marino's records. But uh, Pickett this year had a glow-up that was probably on par relative to what Joe Burrows was at LSU the year that he was the year before he won the Heisman. Uh, but Desmond Ritter, accuracy concerns from – Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati, accuracy concerns are prominent uh, in his game. Matt Corral from Ole Miss and Sam Howell from North Carolina, the offensive systems that these guys play in makes it extremely difficult to project them to the next level, with any level of confidence. And then Carson Strong has a medical concern with his knee from Nevada, who it, if it wasn't going to be a story, you feel like it would have gone by, gone away by now. And it has not, so uh, to your point, you know, usually a high floor guy has the potential to challenge a guy like Malik Willis from Liberty, who is rough around the edges as far as his play, and two years starter, he transferred out of Auburn to get there. and But the guys behind Malik this year all have questions too, that impact not just their ceilings but their floors.
0: What makes Malik Willis challenging for me? is that sometimes the results are better than the process. You know, he makes some mm-hmm. crazy plays, both with his arm and his legs, but sometimes you, you're watching the All-22, you try to understand the offensive architecture and the progressions, and there are just some throws that, from a, a, a progression standpoint, you feel like the trigger should have been pulled. And and sometimes that re- results in a better result, right? Where it's a bigger throw down the field or he's able to run and gain more yards, but sometimes he just doesn't operate consistently within that structure. But like what you talked about at the opening with Malik Willis, you get a package of traits from an arm talent and an athleticism perspective that leads me to believe that if there's any quarterback out of this group that could actually be a difference maker in the NFL, it's him because he does have those physical skills to hang his hat on. And then as we've gotten to know Malik Willis a little bit throughout this draft process and have had the opportunity to speak with some of his coaches, you gain that perspective that this is a guy that loves football, loves the process, is going to work really, really hard to maximize all of that physical talent that exists. And so when I layer all of that together, that's why I become – the most interested in picking Malik Willis first among the quarterbacks. And that's why he's my QB one. He just doesn't have the physical limitations. The full playbook is going to be open. If you're the team that drafts Malik Willis, now it's just a matter of him maturing into that and, and being able to run it.
1: Okay, Joseph. So I, I, have, I have a follow-up question for you pertaining to this quarterback class in its entirety. You know, we're, we're talking about QB one and his role and we expect QB one, to go in the first round. But my question for you is how many quarterbacks in total mm. get their name called in the first 32 picks?
0: I think we get three.
1: You do? I do.
0: I think we get to three. Okay. And I'll shoot so my let's, shot. Let's, I'll do it.
1: Let Yeah, Let's going to say, let's talk through how we get there. Okay. Well,
0: I, I think we've kind of already – gotten into enough of the Malik Willis conversation to understand why he's one of the three that I would anticipate. The next name that I'll introduce is Kenny Pickett from Pitt. And I mean, just a phenomenal 2021 campaign, a long resume as a starter. There was no cheap production in that Pittsburgh scheme, a lot of progression style stuff. And I thought he just functioned at a level that got me interested. Some throws down the field. He's got good size and mobility. Obviously, hand size, notwithstanding when I talk about size. But there's enough there that I think a team can can evaluate Kenny and feel good about them having a baseline starter with some movement with a good resume that can come in and, and provide a, a, a fairly reasonable answer that's, that's fairly close to his... To his ceiling. Yeah. I don't think that um you, you worry too much about where he's gonna be when he comes in. You worry about how much better he can get, but I think you're gonna get a reasonable answer right away if you draft Kenny Pickett.
1: And yeah, let me jump in there real quick. I do do think the interesting thing for Kenny is as you mentioned, the the hand size is one of the narratives with him, and there's there's a threshold that teams usually like to see quarterbacks above to be able to grip the ball with consistency, especially in inclement weather. And Oh, Kenny has not hit that threshold. Um, so if I'm looking for a spot for Kenny, would you agree with me? Because there's always there's this kind of the snarky comments of, yeah, you can't play in a cold weather environment like Pittsburgh Mm. to to the nice level. Like the ball is bigger in the pros, right? So being able to throw college ball in Pittsburgh is not necessarily one for one. I think about teams that play down south avoid some of the cold, and ideally get a team that plays their home games indoors. So you're guaranteeing the optimal number of your games to not be impacted by inclement weather. Do you say that's a fair assessment of Kenny?
0: That's ideal. I think so.
1: Especially so, late in the season, that, right? That's a conversation for another day. But that that is just something that, that we definitely – um would love to explore. So you talk landing spots because I mean, right now we're just talking about profiles of players individually. We're not doing a mock draft right now. So we're not picking a fit, but as I were vetting fits for Kenny, that's certainly something that I would have in the back of my mind. And we're going to continue this conversation about quarterbacks in the first round here in just a moment. So Joe, let's let's continue conversation on quarterbacks because you said three quarterbacks Mm -hmm. you envision going in the first round. I'm torn, but if you set the over under two and a half, I'd have a hard time getting on the fence or off the fence. So is that last one for you? I feel like I know you well enough to say the name Desmond Ritter, and I'd be right. Is that is that fair to say?
0: You would be right. You would be right.
1: Okay, great, great, great. But is there so a
0: it? No, there, there's not a but. I think where I'm kind of hung up is I wonder if if I if you were forced to pick three quarterbacks predictively that goes in the first round, would you settle on the same three? I want to talk about Ritter, but would you settle on Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, and Desmond Ritter as the three, or are you more inclined to say that either Sam Howell or Matt Corral gets in there over one of those guys?
1: No, I, I would agree with you, and the thought process is Kenny Pickett is the highest floor quarterback of the entire group, in my mind, and Willis and Ritter are the two best physical tools quarterbacks. I think Carson Strong's got a nice arm. He's got a really strong arm. He can push the ball. He can throw the nine ball really well and drop it in the bucket. He can fit it in tight windows and zone coverage. Uh, but the lack of mobility for him, plus the knee and the, the injury questions that are, are going to mm-hmm. linger for him, is a really tough one-two punch. And then, like Corral and Howell, these guys are 6'2", 6'1", 215, they're not big dudes. They don't have big arms in the same way that I look at Malik Willis and his ability to push the ball. So I think that's kind of where I would draw the line. If I pick three, it'd be the same three as you. Uh, order's an interesting debate as far as the the floor for Kenny versus the ceiling of Desmond and, and how teams would weigh that out. But, again, conversation for another day.
0: From a resume perspective, I, I don't think you can really match what Desmond Ritter's been able to put together – throughout his career at Cincinnati. And we talk about the glow up of that program. They're in the college football playoffs. They're losing very few games. And Desmond Ritter deserves a lot of credit for that. And I've been dialed in on Ritter, I feel, feels like for four years now. And seeing his progression has been really exciting where year one, he was a little rough around the edges. Year two, I thought he chased a lot of plays. And then year three and year four as a starter, he, he really settled in and, started to play the position the way he needed to for that team, which was really strong on defense. And then the run game, right? Jerome Ford this past year was phenomenal for them. And so they've had other good backs as well. I mean, Jared Dokes has come through there, Michael Warren. They've had good running backs. It's always been a big part of their their program. And so I think Desmond Ritter settling into, hey, I, I don't have to be a guy that throws the ball 40, 45 times a game for us to win football games, I need to come in and do my job. And what's good about that is he doesn't just come in and manage games. He does make some big-time plays, both as a thrower and as a runner, where this guy does have the the ability to push the ball down the field, and he's really, really good running the ball. He's extremely athletic, and he can pick up chunks, and he picks his spots extremely wisely when it comes to actually pulling the trigger on running with the football. Now the question with Desmond Ritter is the accuracy. You just wish this guy was more consistently able to put the ball where he wants it to go and, you know, put it in spots where guys can stay up and and create after the catch. That's definitely something that's missing, but you also love that he's working with Jordan Palmer, who has a history of helping quarterbacks with accuracy issue. And we've spoken to Jordan Palmer about this with Desmond Ritter and, you know, they're, they're working closely together. Palmer was with Desmond Ritter in Dallas for the playoff game working on some type of hip thing right to make sure that Desmond was ready to to maximize his body's mechanics to throw the football where he wants it to and I can only imagine what this guy is going to be doing in terms of uh, of trying to improve that accuracy now that the NFL is on the horizon and this is solely his focus is becoming you know the best NFL quarterback
1: he can be yeah, it was really interesting conversation with Jordan Palmer talking about you know, the the constant maintenance that they implement on all of his passers as far as uh, surveying the biomechanics and making sure that you're uh, getting the treatments that you need if you kind of naturally have um, a tight low back. Right. And, and to your point, talking about you know, keeping that hip free and so that he's not locking his back hip as an example um and having that impact his follow through and impacting his release. And that's an ever going ongoing struggle that if Riz, if Desmond Ritter is plugged into that dynamic of his game now, I think it bodes well for, and we've heard this about Desmond Ritter on a couple different fronts, carries himself like a professional, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's very professional with how he, operates and how he goes about his business at Cincinnati. And that translation, I guarantee you that will go over well in the interview rooms.
0: So those are my top three quarterbacks. It would be Malik Willis, Desmond Ritter, Kenny Pickett. I personally think there's a pretty big gap between the way I, in terms of my personal valuation, I think there's a pretty big gap between those three guys and, and Sam Howell, Matt Corral, and, and Carson Strong, and maybe that's surprising to some people because I'd, Matt Corral, Corral has been.
1: That. a – You put him, put him in with the those top of that three. Bucket. In the uh, bottom of that bucket. All right, I think there's a gap. We we had a chance to talk to Matt in Los Angeles. Right. How do you feel about Matt as a quarterback and a personality in your locker room, being a leader of your players coming out of that conversation with Matt?
0: I think you feel great about it. You feel great that he's going to do all the little things and work extremely hard. You love that this is you know, a a Los Angeles guy, right? And he's like, no, I got to get out of here. I got to go to Oxford, Mississippi (laughs) to go play my college football because I got to focus in and play ball. I mean, that's a pretty significant thing, right? Like it's important to him. And he talks about, You know just how much he wants to lead by example, and if he's not walking a pat by a piece of trash on the floor in the locker room, he's going to be that guy that picks it up. Like you love all those intangibles that are going to exist with Matt Corral. My questions are just a very modest overall physical profile in terms of size, mobility, arm talent, and then just that scheme that Lane Kiffin offense. I just don't think it has done any favors for for Matt in terms of preparing him for life in the NFL. And I know that's not Lane's job. But he is, he's got a, a large curve uh, based on his what he's going to have to do, right? He's going to be asked to do a lot of things he wasn't asked to do in, in the NFL compared to college.
1: So, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, being a good leader and all that jazz is great, but the question is, can you ball, right? And so for Matt, that's the big blank that needs to be filled in is, how well do you handle an NFL offense and operating within NFL reads because you, you watch Matt Corral play at Ole Miss and it's a lot of binary reads, a lot of RPOs. You know, he did use his legs with a fair amount of frequency. They used a ton of tempo there, which often prompts some, some vanilla play and you're just taking advantage of tempo and miscommunication by the the opposition. So Mm -hmm. yes, those are legitimate X's and O's questions. But I look at Matt, and I do think the intangibles component with him is as impressive as any of the guys that we just got done talking about. But I also feel like his, he's got a toughness and a swagger about him on the field. You watch him running for first downs. You watch him down in the red zone running for touchdowns, putting his body on the line, getting lit up against Arkansas the way that he did. Like That kind of stuff sticks with me a little bit. And I think his arm strength is above average. I think his mobility is above average. I think he's a more accurate passer than Desmond Ritter, and I piece those things together, and it's enough for me to at least put him in that conversation, personally.
0: So he would be if if you said, "Hey, you have to pick four quarterbacks that go in the first round." That'd be the one that you would bump into. That. I'd add him on here. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. What about Howler? Would would you pick Howler Strong over him?
0: No, I have no, I have Corral higher than Howell, for sure.
1: Okay, we but let's let's friends. have that
0: That's conversation because we we started this year right, like going into twenty twenty one the the college football mm-hmm. season, the conversation was Spencer Rattler, and Sam Howell, and, and the conversation right now is not about <laughs> either of those two players nope. being uh nope. high first round picks, and so, what have you seen from Sam Howell, and and how are you projecting him?
1: Well here's Here's what I do know um, the offensive infrastructure at North Carolina is just as useless as old misses <laughs> is as far as trying to extrapolate like quality NFL reps and things that you're going to be asked to do at the next level, so that you know it puts them on the same playing field. But if I were to look at Sam, well, his running took a big step forward this year. I mean he deserves a lot of credit for that, mm. but the passing I thought was pretty rough. You you noticed the drop off with them having Daz Newsome and Diami Brown leave for the NFL last year, as well as Javante Williams and Michael Carter in the backfield. You know Carter involved in the passing game. Uh, so you had this. You had four NFL talents leave your group last year, and you are the last man standing. And I don't know that you got a better version of Sam Howell. You got a more dynamic running version of Sam Howell. I think that was out of necessity. Sam throws some really pretty balls down the field. I think that's where his best throws come into play. But he is six foot one. Uh, He is somebody who I think really struggles with his footwork to get a line to throw. Mm -hmm. Shorter quarterbacks are automatically behind the eight ball as far as their ability to throw over the middle of the field because they can't consistently see. They're going to have to adjust their arm angle to throw around those offensive linemen. And then you add in the fact that Sam's footwork is where it is, where you know he plays in, in uh, Phil Longo's offense. The, the point of emphasis there is not in you want to get to the top of your drop and you want to be aligned to throw and everything's going to be on time. That they don't care about the footwork. As long as the ball's out when it's supposed to be out, they don't care what the footwork looks like. And that, I think, creates this very large spray chart for Sam, and I think you really saw that this year when he didn't have as good a chemistry with his receivers.
0: Now, look, the, the NFL does care care about footwork, and so that's going to complicate things projecting Sam Howell right. to the next level. So, Kyle, we've talked a ton about quarterbacks, but quarterbacks need wide receivers to throw the football to. And we've got a really fast that by wide... Sam Howell. Exactly. Exactly. We have a fascinating wide receiver group to discuss and, you know, a lot of wide ranging opinions on these players, even within our own scouting staff over at the draft network. And so before we really dive into these players and, and talk about the class and the depth of the class, let me ask you this, because it's been fascinating to watch the NFL in recent years find so much value on day two with wide receivers, whether that's A.J. Brown or D.K. Metcalf or Michael Thomas or Cooper Cup or Terry McLaurin. I mean, the, the list just continues to grow. And you've had some big-time talents come through in the first round, like a Justin Jefferson and Jalen Waddle and Jamar Chase, but there's also been the Jalen Ragers of the world and uh, mm-hmm. the N.K. Harrys of the world. And so how has the way things have played out in the NFL for wide receivers impacted the way that you're looking at this class, both from a valuation and a evaluation perspective.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I'm a team in the first half of the first round, those top 16 picks, there's a couple wide receiver hungry teams in that, that range. I think about Atlanta. I think about Cleveland, even after Amari Cooper. I would not, allow a top receiver prospect from enticing me into selecting him in that range when you consider the opportunity cost that's going to be given when you can get this is just my personal grades right and i've done about 150 prospects final grades to this point uh, i'll have another 100 or so done before the draft i got seven guys with second round values I got three guys with first-round values, and Jamison Williams is a stud, right? Like, Jamison Williams went healthy. We got to see what he was capable of doing this year at Alabama, and it was the best showcase of any receiver in the country, in my opinion. But if I got guys who have got, got graded a handful of points lower that are technically qualifying as second-round grades, and they're going to be there around later, and I need offensive line help with some of the top-tier offensive line talents that are available, I'm absolutely going to be one of those teams who's tapping into the thought process of, we're going to hit the receiver on day two, guys, because we we got, we got to build it up front, we got to build the trenches, there's really good prospects available on both sides of the line of scrimmage this year, early in the draft, I'm taking that premium position in the trenches, and then I'm looking at wide receiver in round two, because the, the numbers are so in your favor, there's going to be a good player there almost guaranteed, no matter what style of offense you try to run.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. When you foil everything that you talked about against the trench players that you can get in the first round and wait on the receiver, yeah. the
1: every team should do that every in the time. Second round.
0: Now, what about this layer of wide receiver contracts, right? I mean, these guys are getting some money, dude. Like, Christian Kirk got a lot, Zay Jones. I know that's kind of a Jacksonville thing, but, you know, these receivers, Chris Godwin, Mike Williams, $20 million a season. These are expensive, and as we've learned in watching the two teams get to the Super Bowl last year and the Bengals and the Rams, you kind of need three. And This is an 11-personnel league with more and more 10. You know, it's so you can't have $60 million tied up in three receivers. You have to have at least one economic option in my mind. And get those through the draft.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the logical spot, especially outside the top 32 picks. You know, you, you're not you, going to have a more high variance of outcomes as far as what that investment is going to look like. But there's a surplus in receivers every year. This year, it just yeah. feels like the round two and the round three guys aren't exceptional. I mean, just go down the list. Are we going to agree Jameson Williams is going to be first round draft selection out of Alabama?
0: He should be. He should be.
1: Okay. Let' uh, we'll. I'll take that as a yes. Drake London from USC.
0: Good chance of it.
1: I'll take that as a yes. Is there any other receiver that you think is a slam dunk to go in the first round?
0: No. We'll probably, probably get Garrett two. Wilson's going. Garrett Wilson's going in the first round.
1: Yeah. Yes, that's fair. So that's that's three. You'll probably get one more or somebody. Whether it's Alave from Ohio State. Dotson from Penn State, Burks from Arkansas. Sleeper would be Skymore from Western Michigan. But you, like they're not all going to go in the first round. So the no. trickle-down effect is you get all those names that I just mentioned, plus David Bell from Purdue, George Pickens from Georgia, John Mechie from Alabama. At that point, you're, you're kind of into Calvin Austin from Memphis, who might be a slot guy because he's undersized. Uh, Jalen Tolbert from South Alabama is probably a round three guy as compared to a round two guy. Wandale Robinson from Kentucky was a Penn State transfer, had an electric year this year with over 1,100 yards receiving, was really, really good uh, in all phases of the field. You just play the numbers game like this is the way, and and you get that guy into an opportunity which he's going to get 60 to 80 targets in the passing game maybe not in year one, but, you know, when your competitive window as a team and you're going to reap the benefits of that from having a player that's not on a first-round rookie contract, the rookie wage scale drops off steep. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're talking less than a million dollars against the cap per year at that point with some of these draft selections outside the first round.
0: So, Kyle, I want to ask you about Jamison Williams, but before we get there, I'd like to bring in Chris Schubert, our producer – and our uh, resident New York Jets fan, because I think there's a practical application
1: that we can have
0: right now, right? Because the Jets, they own picks four and and 10.
2: That's correct. Four and 10, four and
0: 10. And we just talked all about these receivers and the, would you rather type stuff and picking a a trench player in the first round and waiting on the receivers. How do you apply that to a team like the, the Jets where, you have some young receivers in Elijah Moore and Braxton Barrios. You have needs at defensive line for sure. Are you more inclined to, to have or, or want the Jets to wait on the receiver? Or do you want to go ahead and get that top guy at, at, I guess, would be 10?
2: It's tough, right? Because, and we've had these conversations off air and not on the show. And I've said to you that I'm at this point where I'm going to be comfortable with whatever the Jets do, whatever Joe Douglas decides to do. I'm starting to fall in love with certain players and I'm starting to love starting to fall in love with the idea of certain guys in certain spots. And I cannot avoid the idea of them picking Jamison Williams at ten and him being a part of this offense with Zach Wilson. And so it's it's a it's a balance, right? Free agency is still in the works, right? They can still make some signings, but they did a lot in the first couple of days. They addressed a huge need on the interior of the offensive line. They got two pass-catching uh, tight ends. They shored up some of the defensive stuff by adding a corner and a safety. So I think when you look at what has been accomplished so far, there are certain things that you can rule out with their first couple of picks. And so I think in a combo of four and 10, I think Edge and wide receiver are both on the table for them. And so with that being said, if wide receiver is still one of the needs of this team, and it is just because they re-signed Braxton Berrios, does not change things. They still need a wide receiver to add to this group. There's a guy they love. If they love a Jameson Williams, if they love a Garrett Wilson, if they love a Drake London, go get that guy at 10. Because I don't know if he's going to be there when you pick a 35 or 38, and you've done enough elsewhere to make me feel like, okay, I understand what's going on here. So I'd be comfortable
1: with it. And Kyle's going to, all right, go ahead. I'm going to interject on behalf of my good friend Joe here, because I'd like to ask you a follow-up question. We we like to talk about things like player grades and valuations, but we also like to talk about things like scheme fits. So I'd like to ask you, based off of Coach LaFleur and his offense and what we know it likes to try to implement, and what you're trying to accomplish conceptually, right? Because it's players are not a one-size-fit-all. It's not like Madden where you could just go sign the 85 wide receiver that's on free agency, and he's going to put up 1,200 yards for you just because he's there. So when you think about the receivers that would be available to New York Jets, presumably all of them mm-hmm. at 10, is there one whose style of play you feel like would best be accentuated in Coach Lafleur's mm-hmm. offense? So this is interesting, right? Because when we look at the, the Shanahan offense, which is
2: where Lafleur comes from, they they don't necessarily have they've never really had they, they don't need a superstar quarterback, right? They've gotten they've gone to a Super Bowl and they've made deep runs in the playoffs with Jimmy Garoppolo. I think Zach Wilson, if he reaches the ceiling that we all think he can, is a much better player than Jimmy Garoppolo. It's a much better player than a lot of these other uh, quarterbacks that they've had in the system. So I think LaFleur is going to stay to the, the principles of this system, but if he can get somebody that can be a burner down the field for Zach Wilson and that elite arm talent that we think he has, then I think they're going to do that. So I'm not trying to talk around your question, Kyle. I just do think it's a little unique here with the jets, because if Zach Wilson reaches the potential that they think he can reach, I think it's a little different, uh, for me personally, I listen, they have Corey Davis who fills a certain role for them. Elijah Moore was more of a down-the-field threat for them this year and really thrived in that role. I think they're going to need another guy like that. Um, I'd love Jamison Williams. He would be the guy that would fit the most. I know Drake London, everyone talks about the contested catchability and what that would bring to this Jets offense. I'm not necessarily sold on that being a one-to-one fit. So if I had to rank it, it would be Jamison Williams one, Garrett Wilson two would be the two guys that I would like them to go after. If they didn't go after either of those guys, there are plenty of guys that I like Christian Watson, I think, makes a lot of sense if they can get him at 35 or 38. There are guys that make sense, so there are a lot of options to tie it back to what you guys were saying at the beginning. If you do have a bunch of other needs, you can wait. And with a team that has two picks in the second round, there's an opportunity to wait, and that that changes where these guys are going to land.
0: So the one guy that I think we all agree that you don't wait on is Jamison Williams, wide receiver from Alabama, top of the class type guy, at least the way the draft network sees it. And so Kyle... What do you think it is about Jamison, even with the ACL tear, that makes him the clear-cut wide receiver one in this class?
1: When teams are playing two high safeties, trying to take away vertical throws, and he's running by you and just torching <laughs> your safeties, not a care in the world that they're there. Opens up his strides, the man is a gazelle in the open field was really impressive to watch. That, for me, was the, kind of the first, oh, wow. They're playing you that soft, and you're still getting vertical over top of them. And then on top of that, you take into account what they did with some of the creative touches to get him the ball quickly and let him win after the catch. So I think he wins vertically, dominant skill set. And in short spaces, and a lot of the screen game that Alabama implemented, you also saw dominant ability in short spaces to create false steps and missed tackles and create yardage for yourself. So that was kind of the question that I was beating around the bush with, with Chris is we know the Shanahan offenses, they like yak. They want receivers who can get the ball quickly and then create for themselves and create extra yardage to allow the offense to stay on schedule and create chunk plays. And that's a component of, and when they run the ball as well as the Shanahan offenses like to do, you're getting a high commitment in the box, so you're getting more one-on-one on the outside, so you're increasing your likelihood of explosives on the outside. Jamison can do both. And that, for me, is why he's a step above everybody else in a really, really deep and really, really talented wide receiver group.
0: I love Jamison Williams. I-, I think he's super talented, and I think he's absolutely Worth the wait, right? You're going to have to wait a little bit because he's got the injury. But don't let that – don't let missing out on eight games stop you from grabbing a guy that's going to help your team for eight years. That's what I would say about Jamison Williams. I think he's the cream of the crop this year at wide receiver. And, uh, man, he's going to make some quarterback happy and some offensive coordinator happy at the next level.
1: So, Joe, this is a, a great embodiment of what happens when you put us in a room and charge us with talking football. We came into today. We said, let's, let's talk the heavy hitting position groups in this year's draft class. We want to talk quarterbacks. We want to talk wide receivers and we want to talk defensive ends. Well, as everybody hears, we got through quarterbacks and our top wide here and that was it. So, uh, Obviously a lot of great content coming down the chute in regards to those other discussions and the the dynamics of the wide receiver room and the individual talents uh, within it in this year's draft class. But Joe reflecting on everything that we did get a chance to talk about today. If somebody who listened to draft dudes for the first time, listened in on today's show, what's the one thing that you would hope they would take away with them from our conversations?
0: Mm, it's a fun question. Um... They would take away from our quarterback discussion about having some type of trump card as a trait that you can hang your hat on that gives you a reason to be a difference maker. And as you evaluate quarterbacks and you talk about first round guys that you are careful to not allow yourself to fully buy in on a quarterback that's missing a premier trait. Now, they could be a serviceable starter, but. Temper your expectations if they don't have that elite trait to hang their hat on.
1: And mine would be what Christopher and I teased in the last segment, scheme fit matters, right? And we think about each one of these individual players has individualized strengths and weaknesses, and the hardest part about what we do in our space is we're acknowledging what the strengths and weaknesses are And using them as recommendations to forecast them for teams. But the teams are going to see them differently. And the teams are going to see the roles that they're able to provide those players with differently. And sometimes the vision for the player doesn't match their actual true strengths. And that's where you see a lot of players early in the draft. You don't get to be a first-round draft selection by not being talented at the game of football. You end up not working out because so many of the times, sometimes it's self-inflicted. But other times, the conditions that you're placed in, the things you're asked to do as a player, don't match and marry truly to what your skill set was at the college level versus the projection of what it actually becomes. We hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. We know we certainly did. Make sure you come back next time. Kyle Krabs, Joe Marino, Chris Schubert, The Draft Network, here on Draft Dudes.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe.